hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. Beware, spoiler phobes. You have stumbled upon a storm of spoilers, a podcast about HBO's Game of Thrones series in conjunction with the Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. Martin. It is rethrone season as we re-watch the six previous ten-episode seasons of Game of Thrones in preparation for season seven hitting HBO this July. It's highly recommended you catch up with the shows we go along, and our local book experts will also be cherry-picking literary and adaptation nuggets as we march towards a new, spoilable season of Game of Thrones. The Realm. Do you know what the Realm is? It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies. A story we agree to tell each other over and over till we forget that it's a lie. But what do we have left? Gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Hello and welcome to A Storm of Spoilers. My name is Dave Gonzalez and I have not read any books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. My name is Joanna Robinson, and I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series. And I'm Neil Miller, and I've read all the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire the series. I've also read many a comment section on websites dedicated to this topic. <laughs> and you have stumbled upon our Re Thrones project, rewatching the seasons of Game of Thrones leading up to this summer's brand new season of game of thrones there where we will have our crackpot theories and production spoilers but here just discussion of what's come before hopefully you've done your homework and caught up all the way through season four because that's what we're discussing this week but first joanna robinson do we have any reviews guys we sure as heckfire do and i definitely oh, have them yeah. right at the ready and i'm not at all stalling wow i searched for them did we get a lot of reviews this week? I feel like we got a lot of reviews we this did. week. We did. Everyone was very kind. Thank Thanks, you. everybody. Y'all are awesome. Um, but I thought I would do an, uh, an accent review because um, I'm just going to do an American one. By Sarah Stark. Five stars. Makes my Monday mornings 100% better. I look forward to this podcast every week. I primarily listen to the Throne stuff, so right now I'm enjoying the Rewatch series. I find that sometimes, or even often, I disagree with the opinions expressed, and yet somehow, shockingly, I'm still able to enjoy the heck out of it. That shockingly should be read with great sarcastic inflection. Uh, let me try that again. And yet somehow, shockingly, I'm still able to enjoy the heck out of it. The varied <laughs> perspectives are enriching and entertaining, and it's just fun to nerd out with these three for an hour and a half every week. Can't wait to go through season seven with them to long live the Lady Stoneheart theory. She'll be back. Lady yeah. Stoneheart and that reviewer from, what, from that review. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, that works. All right. And without further ado, I know we got a lot of reviews. Is that all we want to highlight this week? I think, I think that's good. A lot of other people were sort of like valiantly coming to our defense against the negative reviews we got last week and that's so kind but like probably also just you know stirring up things you, that should remain buried yes were there were there were they all five stars 
and then technically they said whatever they wanted? Yes. All right. Oh, uh, no, I just got go. one that was a four-star. Yeah, oh. I don't understand that one. Interesting. But it was positive, so maybe it was yeah. legitimate, like, this is a four-star podcast, which I respect that. Yeah, I, All right. I definitely respect that. Well, I'm like, I, I'm I not take even sure I agree. criticism, I suppose. I'm not even sure I agree with your star rating rule at all. I just let you get away with it because you're quite charismatic, but um, I'm not sure <laughs> it's, it's fair to dictate to people how many stars they leave us. Well, I figure I can always try until they become some sort of star emoluments clause for being a podcast host. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> And without further ado, uh, we plunge into more political intrigue in season four, uh, which has some of my, uh, it's my, it's a little finger ascendant season. So it has some moments that I definitely appreciate. This is also the season that this podcast started. Uh, so I got to go back and listen to some of our previous early episodes, which was uh, tons of fun. Oh. Well, now you guys like could do that. Enhanced homework. It is like enhanced homework. I, but I had a lot of time on planes, so it was also good. Good way to pass the time. Oh, there, much like I review aren't pointed there, like, out. Some sad Neil-less episodes there. There are a few sad Neil-less episodes. Oh, what a bummer. <laughs> and then our chemistry is also not like yet popping yet, Joanna. So it's 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 an interesting like trip down memory lane. I I found it partially enjoyable, but. <laughs> Maybe because I'm on it. But I also hate the sound of my own voice, which is why this is all painful. So, Neil, <laughs> why don't you take us through the highlights of season four? I would love to. Many highlights as we check in on George's children plus Sansa. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with Bran Stark, who ran around inside his wolf's body for a while, gets captured by Carl Tanner of Gin Alley, wargs into Hodor and murders Locke, reaches the Three-Eyed Raven's Weirwood, and is told that he will learn how to fly. Some other stuff happened, but that's pretty much the bare bones of it. Not a whole lot for Bran. Daenerys Targaryen was slightly busier. She walked past 163 dead children. She liberates the city of Marine. She meets Hisdar Zolorak. Uh, she is presented with a burnt dead child. Uh, come on, Drogon. Uh, she discovers Sojora's treason, banishes him, and then locks up her other two dragons, Rhaegal and Viserion. Wait. Oh, wait. You did say it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just like... That's... You, it's very important what happens to poor Jorah. What? When... Oh, well, yeah. It was a very emotional moment, obviously, for all of us. Um, all of us equally the same amount felt the same way about yeah, that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, Sansa Stark uh, begins the season sad about the Red Wedding, then attends the Purple Wedding, uh, is scurried away by Sir Dantos and handed over to Littlefinger, uh, who tells her all about the plot to kill Joffrey and takes her to eat lemon cakes with her crazy Aunt Liza. She later smacks Lord Robin, gets kissed by Littlefinger, dyes her hair, sets off on an adventure that is sure to include nothing but good decisions and happiness. Tyrion Lannister meets Prince Oberyn, which is the most important thing that happens this season, decides to send Shay away, attends Joffrey's wedding, is arrested for Joffrey's murder, goes on trial, gives an impassioned monologue about wishing he could kill everyone in King's Landing, chooses trial by combat, gets the Red Viper of Dorne as his champion, watches his champion tragically slain by the mountain, gets broken out of jail by Jaime, murders Shay, murders his father, escapes on a ship with Varys. Tyrion had a very busy season. 
Alright. Who's next? Arya Stark. Uh, Arya Stark continued her journey with the Hound toward the Eyrie. Uh, she kills Poliver at an inn, gets Needle back, adds the Hound to her list, kills Rorge, has a good laugh at the Bloody Gate, meets Brienne of Tarth, watches Brienne of Tarth fight the Hound, leaves the Hound to die, catches a ship to Braavos. Yeah. That's like the, the last good Arya Stark season. <laughs> uh, Jon Snow survives the arrow barrage of Egret, testifies to his crimes of passion, meets fucking Ollie, leads a raid on the mutineers of Craster's Keep, kills Carl Tanner of Ginelli, burns down Craster's Keep, has a sex talk with Sam, participates in the Battle of Castle Black, kills a Then, watches Egret get shot by fucking Ollie, holds Egret in his arms while she dies, is reminded that he knows nothing, goes north of the wall to kill Mance, is surrounded by Stannis' army, shares a weird glance to Melisandre, burns Egret's body. Significant deaths of season four include the Hound, or so we thought, Gren, Pip, Jojen Reed, Locke, Liza Aaron, Shay, Egret, Tywin Lannister, Ober Martell, and King Joffrey, first of his name. They are survived by... Cersei Lannister, with one less child. Jamie Lannister, also with one less child. Tommen, who gets to be king now. Marjorie, who gets another husband. Lady Elena, who is awesome. Ilaria Sand, the mountain, sort of. Varys, everybody on Team Danny. King Stannis, King Balon Greyjoy, Theon, and three teenage dragons. And that is your highlights of season four of Game of Thrones. You know, I remember when the children... You know how when we did last week's episode, Neil, you were like... Oh, the season 10 is garbage and like, um, or episode 10 is garbage and like they should, they just, you know, they keep whipping up episode 10s. And I remember in season four, a lot of people being like, this is the first great Game of Thrones finale because they didn't just like make it a like tying up loose ends episode. Um, that being said, the like feelings you get of like Arya on a boat zooming towards her future as the choral version of the Game of Thrones themes kicks up is like ruined by the fact that you know she's going to like boring Plotsville. Um, so like <laughs> watching it this time, I was like, don't get on the boat, Arya. Uh, so yeah, yeah. sail to a oh, more I remembered I had city. this coin. <laughs> does um does that Melisandre Jon Snow glance ever? pay off in any significant way do we feel she's like stares at him never it does because she's she stares at him weirdly a lot in the next season and she tries to fuck him and all this stuff so okay it does all right yeah and then i don't know maybe season six has something to do with it yeah yeah the the, the weird <laughs> fire potential she sees in him or whatever it is you are the prince that was promised you don't get to choose this. Wrong, wrong again, buddy. Wrong again. Okay. Uh, my <laughs> well, turn now, right? <laughs> well, almost. Oh, almost. First, we have to take this break. And now it is your turn, Joanna, with uh, our, our favorite segment, especially uh, for those of us that haven't read the book, Book Changes with Joanna Robinson. Oh, is this our favorite segment? Okay. It's um, my favorite segment. <laughs> Uh, one thing I like it, that the book really hammers home that the show sort of only touches on is like how much Tywin Lannister has been wanting a Valerian steel sword in the, in the family for, for years and years and like how he like tried to buy them off poor, like families, noble families that had fallen in hard times. He's like, Hey, 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 
uh, a Lannister pays his debts, I'll take your Valyrian steel sword. They're like, anything but the sword. So like, it's, it's a nice reinforcement of, um, how precious those Valyrian steel swords are to the various houses. And then also just what this does, moment does mean for Tywin, but also he gives one, to a grandson who's soon to die and the other to a son who quickly gives it to a random lady. So, you know, Tywin, uh, good, good effort. A for effort. Okay. Um, <laughs> the other thing I want to say is that when Brienne gets to King's Landing, she's not allowed to just like roam around. Um, she's imprisoned. And I, I remember the reason I wanted to mention that is I remember Katie Rich, friend of the pod, was going to interview Gwendolyn Christie right before season four. And she's like, what should I ask her? I was like, ooh, ask her about going to, going to jail this season or something like that. And Gwendolyn Christie's like, oh, am I? <laughs> and like, yeah. um, that was sort of my first indication that like me making assumptions that certain book plots would be carried out is not something I could do anymore. Um, all of the Arya and Hound stuff is sort of like mixed and matched and put through the blender. And I think it all largely works. Um, but I guess it's important to note that like the Hound's wound that he gets is like quite festering. Like that's a whole thing uh, that he gets from, from that bite. And, um, and that Arya does not steal his purse from him when she leaves him. So it's not quite that cold. Um, the other thing that struck me watching this season is, I don't remember in the books um, Arya getting threatened with rape in that end scene, though I'm sure she's been threatened with rape elsewhere in the books. Um, and, I, and then I stopped and I was like, is there a single female character on this show who has not been either raped or threatened with rape? And I couldn't think of one. Melisandre? Uh, wow, you, you like thought of one right off the bat. Um <laughs> <laughs> that we know of isn't she always talking about like the ex- unspeakable she, things yeah she did that's before actually a good point Lord of she, Life founder. she talked about being a slave and being hungry but you're all right, the time explicitly and... not in the current plot so i will get point point to house miller okay i've been thinking about a lot about melisandre this week okay. so. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all right um and uh so but while we're talking about all the rape that's in the show we should note that Ramsey's hunt of the girl in the books is actually much worse uh, than it is in the show because it, it is his practice in the books to rape the girls uh, when he catches them. Um, and if they will not uh, have unconsensual or like mildly unconsensual sex with them or whatever, uh, he will flay them alive. So, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole extra fun Ramsey thing that happens there. Mm. Um, the Yara rescue scene that happens in, in the show does not happen in the books. And you know why? Because it sucks. It makes no sense. So <laughs> Ramsey does like offer Theon the option to leave and Theon doesn't leave. And so that, that makes sense. Like Theon is so broken at this point that even the opportunity of rescue does not appeal to him. Um, but to have Yara and the Ironborn roll up and then just run away is very, very silly. And it's one of those things that I keep hammering on about of like, I really think they could have just given Yara the season off and we wouldn't have been that upset about it. And that's a lesson they learned in season five when they give Bran the season off. But like for a while there, they were like, oh, we have to see this character. Otherwise, people are going to forget about them. Um, Shay's surprise testimony does occur in her books, but her motivations are changed. In the books, the character is more cynical and does not care about Tyrion and her motive for tes- testifying against him in the trial was financial. Cersei having bribed her for her testimony in the show, her motives seem more based on revenge and hatred for being rejected. And so this is something we talked about last season um, or, or last week's episode, which is that the Shay thing just doesn't like, doesn't really feel like it tracks. 
like when Tyrion basically like throws rocks at her like she's Nymeria the wolf and is like, you're nothing but a whore. Like I'm doing this to protect you, but I have to throw rocks at you in order to get you to leave. Like, like I can't believe she actually believes him. And then I can't believe she's so angry about it that she would do this. It's just, it's, um, it's crazy to me. Well, it proves all the bad things people say about Shay Wright, which seems like a the different direction than where the character was going last season. Yeah, I guess I mean the, like, the version in the books is just much more mercenary, and this they tried to like give her some depth and then also have her be not a good person in the end anyway. I guess I don't know. Um, I mean, hell hath no fury, sure, yada yada yada, but um, like. I don't know. If you get dumped by some guy even viciously, do you then orchestrate his death via trial? <laughs> like, what? That's insane. Okay. Seems a little bit strong. Uh, yeah, so it's, a bit, it's a bit of a strong action. Ollie is a show-invented character who is garbage. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tyrion and Jamie part ways acrimoniously um, in, in the books, like Tyrion lies to Jamie as he's leaving and says he did kill Joffrey. And, and so they part ways like in anger. And I remember writing about it at the time. And I think some people were like, I couldn't have handled it. Like with the Tywin death and the Shea death and everything that was happening, I couldn't have handled it. If like, you didn't have that loving, tender farewell between Jamie and Tyrion. So I, I the show probably didn't make the right call there. Uh, Varys is forced to help Tyrion. He doesn't do it out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and you know what? At the end of the books, Lady fucking Stoneheart appears. It's <laughs> <And she laughs> yet to do so in the show. Um, the finale was called Children and it was the first of many finale titles that got us really excited for the potential appearance of Lady Stoneheart. But alas, alack, uh, she is still on the loose. So that's where it all began. There you go. There's a lot more, but those are, those are some highlights. From right here to last season, where every lingering shot of somebody peeing in a river <laughs> was a potential for a zombie hand to come shooting out of it, all begins. Uh, well, I mean, that's obviously one thing that we would all do differently about season four is include Lady Stoneheart. But I bet there are other things that we would do differently on season four. And I'm going to start, which is that I think that we don't need as much Ramsey and Reek stuff as we get this season I understand it's in the books, but I would much rather just like pick up after Moat Kalen, see the legitimizing of Ramsey, and move on to Winterfell, especially knowing as a TV show that you don't really need to keep him a consistent sociopath for me to feel a threat. I saw him torture Theon. I've seen Theon broken here as Reek, and then you're going to do everything you're going to do with Sansa later on, Sansa later on. <laughs> So uh, I feel like there's that could have been spent that time could have been spent doing better things, and we would also lose the uh, rescue scene, which, as Joanna pointed out, sucks. <laughs> um, what would I do differently? I so I've been thinking about this whole Team Daenerys stuff that they try to do. They try to do some things to make the famously boring. Daenerys and Marine stuff more interesting, right? And one things they one of the things they do is try to to expand the relationship between Grey Worm and Missandei, um, with like her teaching him to read, and then their very like their their whole courtship and all that, which of course is not in the books because she is a child. 
But I think it goes back to something we were talking about last week, which is um, the kind of personalities you want to pair together. And um, like you don't put a Braun with a Jamie because that's basically two Jamies. And I feel like here you basically have like two Briands. You have like two very stoic, reserved people trying to have chemistry with each other. And it's just like not working. And it's not a knock on those two performers. I'm just so deeply uninterested in the story. And I want to be interested in their story. Um you know, I, I think I think the Grey Worm and Missandei stuff, like expanding, also is a reaction to the criticism Game of Thrones was getting for the lack of of non-white characters who like had anything like really interesting to do, and so they're trying to give Grey Worm and Missandei something interesting to do, and in my opinion, it's not it's not really working. Um, Although, what if they answer the most important question? Is that the most well they we they might this season, so there you yeah. go. Yeah. It's it's I mean it's up there on the list. Okay. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um in the uh, I know this is this is sort of like in my books stuff like bleeding into the section, but in the books Daenerys originally plans to pardon Jorah, but she's mad because he he's not contrite. He's very sort of bullish because book Jorah kind of sucks and show Jorah is an angel. Um and in the show, I was watching that scene and I was like, cause Ian Glenn is giving everything he has, I, I feel like, in that scene. And Amelia Clark was directed to stare stonily off into space and not change her facial expression at all. And you can extrapolate from that that Daenerys is making a very hard decision and she's trying to keep it together and she's trying to be, like, strong and brave and, and a queen um, and, and commanding as she sends him away. But I wonder if there were alternate takes of that scene where they're like, okay, let's try it where this is really actually very hard for you because he's been your most constant companion. You know, like... That scene didn't work as well as I think it should have. So all of the team and like, don't get me started on Dario or the complete waste of Barris and Selmy. So all of the team Daenerys stuff could be better. I think. I also hated <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything that happens at Craster's Keep, which is show invented. Um, the like, we praised Michelle McLaren last week. This week, I'm going to throw under the bus and say like the whole. Carl Tanner from Gin Alley drinking wine out of Jorah Mormont's skull while women are getting raped in the background scene is... And then him saying, fuck him to death. Yeah, it's just one of the worst. It's just rough. That, is, like, that moments. scene has some of the worst uh, subtitles. It's, ugh, uh, it's just, yeah. Like watch. sound effects sort of stuff. Ugh, gross. Yeah, it's all, it's like, and it's not, it's not that, like, I'm so dainty. It's just like, it's so obvious. It's like, oh, is this guy evil? He's drinking wine out of a beloved character's skull while women are getting raped. Like, as, as. Oh, God, do bad things happen in Westeros? <laughs> set dressing. <laughs> um, and the lock stuff, too, I don't feel really works. Uh, apparently, the original plan was for him to. Because he's based on a book character of Argo Hoth. The original plan was to have him be fed to a, the bear in season three, um, which I think would have been much more fun. But instead, they're like, oh, no, we're going to use him to unite the John and Bran plot. And it just sort of is very odd to me. Um, and those are the things I would change. Yeah. Neil. Oh, I have one. Very quick one. Um, but also, it's, it kind of goes back to what Joanna mentioned earlier about where it started to feel like they they started to get a little handholdy with the audience with the Yara stuff, like that felt to me more of like a we don't want to, we don't want people to forget that this character exists and has motivations. Yeah. Um, then it needed to be part of Theon's story. Also, the Theon thing super interesting. I, I really thought that was well done in the book because you meet Reek, you're in Reek's head, 
and you're sort of learning slowly. It's almost like in flashback form what happened to him. Well, having to watch it in real time is tough. Um, yeah, it's just it's I don't know it it's grueling. There's there are many things in the season that are grueling, but my thing that I would do differently is I would have Littlefinger say the line "Only Cat." This felt to me, and because you know what, why not? Yeah, why uh, but not? Also, <laughs> this this did feel to me in a way to be one of those um, where the show kind of underestimated its audience. Where it's like he says, only, what does he say? Only your sister? Your sister. Or something. Which is yeah. a more explanatory way of communicating what he means. But only Cat really was sort of a meaningful thing. Um, and I do think... Uh, I just don't think it hurts the scene at all. Like I don't, I don't think like people who've never read the books aren't going to get what he was. I mean, they've been talking about how Littlefinger loved Catelyn Stark for like four seasons. So, anyway, that's my one little. Is thing. he talking about Sir Pounce? I don't understand. What does he oh mean, God. the cat? <laughs> oh, only oh, Sir Pounce. Does she have another sister though. Only Sir Pounce. Um, did you, Dave? Did you mention your Iron Bank point? Oh, that maybe we could have had more yeah. Stannis in the Iron Bank? Yeah. No, we're not done with me mentioning the Iron Bank in this episode, okay. so I didn't feel like I needed to say <laughs> well, it. I, but. I just wanted to like lighten some of my, like, this sucks and that sucks and this other thing sucks uh, commentary with uh, the fact that in the books, Davos doesn't go to the Iron Bank, and that that's a big mistake, huge, because Davos at the Iron Bank is, is good stuff. It's great. So. Good job, Shell. Davos defending Stannis in a situation where Stannis doesn't shut him up is great in this show. As I'm, I'm learning in the rewatch, that Stannis could be an idiot, but Davos stepping up to defend him is always fantastic. Ah, it's always Davos. Stannis. <laughs> yeah. Now he's going to be doing the same thing for Lord Jon Snow. Jon Snow. King of the North. Well, it's a, it was a fun little, like parallel in season six when they were in front of Leanna Mormont or the various lords, right? Like the Leanna Mormont scene though, especially felt like a parallel to the Iron Bank where you have Davos sort of speaking on behalf of, you know, the, the leaders that he is backing. Yeah. He's just 100% man. He's the best hype man in Westeros. The right hand man with not all of his digits. It's probably going to get some sort of weird MVP mentioned in the future seasons. (laughs) Not quite there yet though. Okay. So something you remember hating upon rewatching, but you actually like. Uh, let's go with Joanna, who seems to have some season four gripes. What actually came out better this time? Yeah. Um, well, this is this is like sort of a meta thing. I remember at the time. This is it's it's this rewatch is fun because I'm remembering like covering Game of Thrones. This is like this was my first season covering Game of Thrones for Vanity Fair. Uh, my first season doing the podcast with you. So, like, the first season that I was, like, really in deep on it, I think. And By the um, time we're doing our season six rewatch, it's going to turn into full-blown PTSD. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but the, uh, the Joffrey poison plot, this is the first time I remember being really mad at the internet for not being able to uh, keep its cool. It's BuzzFeed specifically, but I'm sure BuzzFeed was not the only... Um, um, the only culprit. And basically what happened is like, you know, the purple wedding plays out and then Buzzfeed publishes article where it's like, 
whoa, did you notice, like, did you notice these little details of what actually happened when how Joff got poisoned? And it, like, sort of, like, does little screenshots of Lady Olena messing with Sansa's necklace and stuff like that. And I'm like, without a spoiler warning on it. And that really bothered me because I'm like... At the time, it really bothered me because I was like, that you can only know if you read the books. You can only know that if you read the books. You're not some sort of eagle-eyed, like, TV watcher who noticed something. Like, you're you're laying book knowledge over something, and you're spoiling it for people. And granted, it does get sort of revealed the next episode. But I was like, I remember being really, really mad about that. And now looking back, like, just watching the show without that cloud around it, I was like, this is really, I thought it was really well done in the show. Like the way they did the whole thing, the way that they didn't wait too long to reveal what happened, that Lady, both Lady Olena and Littlefinger sort of talk about it uh, right away. And um, yeah, so, so just one of many ways in which the internet, myself included, has ruined Game of Thrones, aspects of Game of Thrones over the years. Um, and how you know, <laughs> if the show is just like enjoyed in a vacuum, it's not that bad. So there you go. Do you think that's the moment when Dan and Dave started um, hating spoilers? Maybe, but like, it's fine to write that post. If you're like, Hey, I, a book reader know something and I'm going to show you right now. If you, a show watcher want to know it, follow along. But if not, do you know what I mean? It was like, it was, it was, it was a lie. It was disingenuous to say, I noticed this when I'm like, you didn't, you know it. Remember when we had to put book spoilers warnings on posts? (laughs) It's crazy. Maybe I'm just like in the super ranty mood today sorry about that (laughs) (laughs) no no that's how we like it uh neil what's something that uh you realized you liked more on this rewatch um pretty much all the stuff at the eerie with lisa and peter (laughs) it was all i guess the first time i saw it it all sort of happens so quickly and it's just weird you don't really catch (laughs) the weird you don't really catch the gravity of like what they're talking about which is like they're responsible for all of it like all of it (laughs) so um you know so i thought that was more fascinating i was more engaged with that story because i think i remember just watching and when you see it the first time you're really just paying attention to what's happening to sansa because that's the only character you really like are invested in surviving this situation so you don't really realize what's going on with peter and lysa Uh, quite as much, or at least I didn't. Um, So, uh, yeah, I found that to be a more interesting storyline. And there's, I don't know, it it felt like there was less Robin Aaron, which is good, because that character is the worst. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I I like that stuff better. I think Kate Dickey does a really good job with with the Lysa character. She does. She does a, a very good job who is terrifying in that dinner scene. And I'm going to spoil one of my ironic lines. It's not an ironic line, but since we're talking about the meta context of the show, when she's like, are you pregnant to Sansa? I was like, Oh, it's a million, it's a million Game of Thrones theorists. (laughs) (laughs) She's speaking for the masses. It's going to generate a lot of tweets. (laughs) I'm going to decide that uh, even though I don't like most of what Bran does before he actually finds his tree this season, uh, it was really frustrating watching it the first time, uh, seeing him decide not to get John's attention at Craster's Keep, and this time it didn't bother me at all. Uh, that seems tiny because I feel like my gripes this season have either stuck around or uh, I just, uh, I don't know, have let them go knowing what I know about seasons seasons past. 
So it was just like tiny little moment to moment decisions uh, that didn't jump out at me as much as they did before when we were trying to decode the show as an adaptation uh, versus, you know, now knowing exactly where it ended up. Right. But, you know, that's, uh, that's what, how, oh, I wish I could remember my exact phrasing from last week when I was so tired I made up something about light and time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because I really feel like I need to have it on a t-shirt for all these rethrones episodes. That's how the wolf bread crumbles. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the wolf bread crumbles. And when we come back from this break, our second favorite part of the episode, when we all bestow Georgie's on the bests and memorables and MVPs of season four. First Georgie up, as per usual, Beth Death. Uh, let's start with Neil. Well, um, I feel like it, this really is a race for second. Yeah. Behind yes. o- Oberyn Martell. Although I would contend that the Oberyn Death is... It's hard to objectively quantify that one because it's so emotional for me. Like, that's a character I didn't want to lose, and I didn't want to do it when I read the books. I didn't even want to do it when I knew it was happening in the show. Um, So I think we've all picked someone other than Oprah, which is good because this gives us diversity of choice. Well, this is is my theory about why we've been, or at least I've been so negative so far, is that we have not talked about Oprah. So like yes, that's the balance. Oberyn. That's the counterbalance of like the negatives of the season is all the Oberyns. The thing is that Oberyn's death is one of the most painful because he almost doesn't die. Like he almost gets everything he wants. He's yes. probably the closest character in Game of Thrones. Like he's probably the only character to get that close to what he wants before dying. Like I think maybe Rob Stark was like the next closest. Right, Rob's um, like, I, my pretty wife is pregnant, I'm winning, and I don't have to, like, uh, no retribution for bailing out on this other engagement. Right. Life's good! Yeah, it's basically Rob Stark and Oberyn both cut down at the peak of their happiness of their storyline. Um, and it's also just so horrific, I can't, I can't even. Anyway, uh, <laughs> my pick for this, for Best Death, is actually Gren, um, because Mark Stanley, the... Uh, actor who plays Gren, right? Mark Stanley. Yep. Um, Very nice beard. Great an excellent beard. beard. I will say that when I read the books, a lot of these Night's Watch characters that weren't Sam and John and Mister Amon and Alistair Thorne and uh, Lord Commander Mormont, they were just sort of nameless to me, as far as I could tell. Um. But his performance is really strong as Gren. And uh, I think that death really sort of is its own moment where he's where they're doing the Night's Watch thing. It's just a really like heroic way to go facing off against a giant. So I, I was he's like the, he, we figure out later he's like the king of the giants. Right. And uh, and, you know, just pure heroism the whole way. So uh, I'm, I'm taking Gren. You're you're telling me you didn't like have a whole fan fiction site devoted to Donald Noy, the blacksmith of Castle Black. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I I the 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 battle for Castle Black is one of my least favorite of the battle episodes, but um, 
What is your least favorite battle episode? That might be it, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not a. Okay. It's not super coherent in hindsight. It is the my least favorite. Um, but the use of uh, Pip and Gren and like war movie tropes, like you know the 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 scared guy who dies anyway, or the guy who makes the impossible stand, like they work. I think they did the work with Pip and Gren to make them like noticeable enough characters. Um, that yeah, those, as much as I dislike those episodes, those deaths really get to me. Um, Gren especially. So, yep. I agree. Um, I also agree that we're, we're in a race for second place, but my second place winner, um, is my last season MVP, which is Good old Tywin Lannister. Yeah. Oh, how the mighty fall from Died on the season. toilet. Um, that scene between Charles Dance and Peter Dinklage is just really great. Uh, that final scene. You know, and, and just couldn't stop saying whore. <laughs> you just couldn't help yourself, buddy. And uh, yeah, and then just the indignity of it all, but a lot of which we can chalk up to uh, George R. R. Martin. That's a great George R. R. Martin conf- confection. Right there, um, it, it, you know, and, and there's that there's that line in the book, right, where it's like, and he, and he found out once and for all that the rumors weren't true, Tywin Lannister didn't shit gold or something like that. It was like, oh. it's like something. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah. I kind of wish there was like a weird Ron Howard voiceover moment in the show. <laughs> I mean, said, said more eloquently than what I just said it, but yeah. Um, so... Yeah, R.I.P. Tywin Lannister. Oh, Tywin Lannister. I'm going to go with an, another Lannister, although he's a Baratheon when he dies, which is King Joffrey. Because at this point, I had started talking to Joanna about her podcast, Cast of Kings, and saying, yeah, but you know what's going to happen, right? Can't you just tell me what's going to happen? And she sort of did tell me what happened, so I knew what was coming. But the episode itself builds so well with his cruelty to his poisoning, and then you're like super into it and happy for a few seconds on his purple face, and then immediately Tyrion's in trouble, and then the episode's over, and things are like never really stop to let you feel good about them. There's the weird uh, sibling incest, maybe rape or maybe just horrible directing uh, like later on. And you never, I think, have the cathartic moment of Joffrey's death, except when it actually happens, which is uh, why it's the best death. I was waiting four seasons for that death ever since Tyrion slapped him around in the first season. Deserved it. Yeah. Um... Yeah, take that. (laughs) He is just (laughs) such like a monster in that episode it's it's crazy that episode they really they really crank it up yeah like in season three and four like they crank up how shitty joffrey is that episode's so good too because there's so many other fun personalities that play like everything that over and Alaria are doing um laura's telling jamie that he would never get to marry his, or fuck his sister <laughs> um <laughs> like all this all this fun stuff going on all around. the faces if you if you ever rewatch it again watch Varys's face at the first table (laughs) behind the entertainment. Oh, Conleth Hill, like I said, bringing it from from moment one has never stopped bringing it. Yeah, that's like Varys's Varys's face is just like my face in every party I don't want to be at. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Moving on to most memorable line, Joanna, I like yours too. I think... I think it's worthy of being first in this category. All right. Uh, we got to give it up to my man, Hot Pie, with his surprise return and his dropping the wisdom of, you <laughs> cannot give up on the gravy. 
So, <laughs> oh, God, hot pie. What's great he's... is that that scene is followed by the scene where he, like, approaches them outside the end, right? And he's like, can I talk to you, my lady? And Brienne goes, not about kidney pie, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> can we not talk about that anymore? Anyway, that's my line. <laughs> Most memorable line goes to hot pie, which has like. Uh, mine is... Uh, Probably to my favorite, from my favorite scene, my most memorable scene of the season, which is uh, Tyrion's trial, which is, I did not do it, I did not kill Joffrey, but I wish that I had. Watching your vicious bastard die gave me more relief than a thousand lying whores. I wish I was the monster you think I am. I wish I had enough poison for the whole pack of you. I would gladly give my life to watch you all swallow it. I will not give my life for Joffrey's murder, and I know I'll get no justice here, so I'll let the gods decide my fate. I demand a trial by combat. And thus, Tyrion's life is changed forever. You know, <laughs> you know the moment that um, that Peter Dinklage realized that Emmy Awards mean nothing? Uh, sometime after season four and before season five? It's when he didn't win for this wait where is he didn't win for this season but he won for a terrible later season yeah he's been <laughs> so he won the first year and everyone's like whoa peter dinklage won for this genre show game of thrones what the hell like came out of nowhere and then he was nominated the next three years didn't win and then he won in 2015 so i think for season five that would be i think it's just awful <laughs> He's like looking up at CGI dragons yeah. and on a boat. And even Peter Dinklage is like, why? Um, yeah. So if you he won for screaming, Mormont, if you <laughs> if you ever want to like see someone's complete faith in whatever faith they might have in the awards community shatter, watch Peter Dinklage accept his Emmy in 2015 because I think he beat out he beat out like Jonathan Banks and Better Call Saul and Jonathan Banks in season one and Better Call Saul is like freaking amazing. So um, yeah. Dinklage should have won for yeah. that speech, for sure. Okay, that's all. Well, he has this, and he has the the Beatles. Yeah. He's got a lot of stuff to do as he's waiting around to, you know, do his fate, which is good that he's a good actor, because otherwise it seemed like a waste of time. But everyone gets to get in the little cell and have a, have a scene. I love it's all the cell it. scenes. And it has your favorite blooper in it, where uh, <laughs> Oberyn Mattel almost, or Pedro Pascal almost burns his head off with a with a torch by leaning on he it. He leans like so nonchalantly and coolly, and Oberyn Martelli against the pillar with the torch on it, and then the torch just falls on his shoulder. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's funny because nobody was it's hurt. Funny because but yes, Pedro's still fine. So. <laughs> mm. Actually, you know what? I kind of wouldn't mind a Pedro Pascal Phantom of the Opera story where it's like. Where Pedro and now he's the hound. that scarred actor. <laughs> now he's the hound. Okay. Uh, Neil, your most memorable line. Speaking of that scene, yes. um, this is actually my first choice, but I cede it to you oh, because really? of your intimate relationship with Over Martell. Yes. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, there were a lot of good monologues in this season. There's a lot of monologuing in this season, um, but the best was when Oberyn is telling. Tyrion, the story of when he first met him and how they went to see the monster and he says, your head was a bit large, your arms and legs were a bit small, but no claw, no red eye, no tail between your legs, just a tiny pink cock. We didn't try to hide our disappointment. That's not a monster, I told Cersei. That's just a baby. That's just a baby. That's oh my just God. fantastic. And then, the, the cut. and then the I will be your champion. I'm like crying right now, actually. <laughs> 
and then the cut to Dinklage's face. Ugh, it's just perfect. It's a wonderful scene. It might be one of the best of the scenes. Yeah, I mean, and, and what I'm really appreciating on this rewatch is just, I guess what I love in Game of Thrones are two-hander scenes. <laughs> Two yeah. really good actors. Two people really talking in writing. a cell. <laughs> yeah. Well, even if you think back to like season one, like the Varys and Ned yeah. stuff in the cells, mm-hmm. it's all Tyrion and Mord. So it just like <laughs> we uh, we uh, we don't want uh, the, the the complications of ruling a city necessarily. No, and we definitely don't want Kit Harrington thinking he's some sort of military genius. We also don't want um, murderer summer camp. <laughs> House of Black and White. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't... I really was crying at that. I need to get myself together. Um, it, <laughs> um, it, it doesn't always work. Like, you have those scenes... Okay, so, like, the best example. Not to just endlessly knock on Kit Harrington, but in the Battle for Castle Black episode, Watch on the Wall, um, and he and Sam have their, like, sex talk... And I'm like, I guess that could have been like... Not a bleeding poet. I guess like... <laughs> Sam's like, yeah, you're not. You're not at all, Jon Snow. Um, like, I guess that could have been like a really... Because he's talking about a grant and he's talking about his first time he had sex and like, you're two people and then you're uh, this other thing when you have sex with someone and it's this whole thing. And that whole time I was just like, ah, oh, this doesn't work for me. But then Sam goes talk to Master Eamon and I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm like, this is, this is great. This scene. I want to hear these two people talk about sex instead. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, John, you know, I mean, it kind of works though for Jon Snow. Cause he's, he's kind of dull. John like Snow. the character is, <laughs> he doesn't know anything. That's true. At least this, this season is the season that they just like, relax and just give him a lot of fighting to do and then they up his fighting so now he's like stabbing people through the back of the head and taking on the second vanguard at the bottom of the whatever seems like uh his his choreographer upped his game a little bit i will say for you know in kid's favor i really did like the like his sort of trial scene earlier on in the season i actually did quite like that um so he could wow I guess the the debate on whether or not Kit Harrington is improving can continue as we move through the seasons. He was great as a corpse. He was pretty good as a corpse, but that's spoilers, Neil. Did you did you see that photo? Of, <laughs> did you see that yearbook photo of Kit Harrington going around the internet this week? No. Okay, I'm gonna look it up while you guys are talking about the next. What? Thing. That's fantastic. He has some sort of corpse face. No. All right. While Joanna's looking that up, we should move on. We should to our season MVP, Neil. I think uh, you, you actually might have the, the, the wide vision correct answer here. So let's start with you. <laughs> well, um, I feel like, you know, I wanted to pick a certain actor playing a certain Dornishman. Um, but when I rewatched it, I really realized the how well directed and shot four specific episodes were. Oh my God! The Kit Harrington photo. Yeah, way to just drop that on us in the middle of. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could that is an insane in. photo of teenage Kit Harrington. Often angry, eh? Yeah, he looks like he looks like Harry Potter, basically. Wow, 
He was born to play Jon Snow. Um, <laughs> anyway, my MVPs uh, is actually two people. It's director Alex Graves and DP Annette Helmig, who did Lion in the Rose, Breaker of Chains, Mountain and the Viper, and The Children together. And all four episodes are just extremely well-paced. Um, they accomplish a lot. They're beautifully shot. Uh, especially, you know, and I, I, I feel like there are moments where Amelia Clark, like they figure out what to do with her. So like the screaming speech that she gives outside the embankments of Marine is really kind of fun. Cause she's a little, a little unhinged and, um, you know, similar to like when we get to season six and we talk about like the Dosh Colleen, when she's a little crazy, she's the best version of Danny. Um, but anyway, so Alex Graves and Annette Helmig, uh, who directed and shot those four episodes, they just killed it. Like they dominated the whole season and each one of their episodes is very good. So they are my season MVP. So I think that, um, I would get, I, I would be remiss if I were not to mention, like, I think this ties back into what you're saying earlier, Neil, about Dan and David's sort of combative attitude towards the fandom going forward. I think part of what generated that in season four was the breaker of chains, Jamie and Cersei sex slash rape scene. And specifically all the comments that Alex Graves made afterwards about like, Oh, I forgot that that was him. Oh no. Asterisk. Yeah. Like a big asterisk on Alex Graves. (laughs) Hey, three, three, three good episodes of the season with those two is still, still good. It's a beautifully shot. Breaker of chains is not a bad episode, but like it specifically comes down to like his direction of that scene and how he thought that it was very clear that it was, consensual and like she's saying no the whole way and so it's just sort of like so then like it often does as as i think dave um without me sort of dropping any hints like said independently earlier which is like badly directed like that that scene is in its most gentlest times called badly directed by alex graves so i think you're right you know i'm not i'm not gonna throw the baby out with the bathwater. uh it's just a baby but um <laughs> but i think we do need to put that asterisk on alex graves's name so that's that's fair yeah. i uh totally forgot that that was in that episode <laughs> But but it's a like, weird moment. I remember we so on Cast of Kings that season we we got an interview with Brian Cogman um when like people from the show were actually still talking to me. And Cogman was just like, you know, I'll talk to you about anything you want and you can ask me anything you want, but I am literally not allowed to talk about that scene in Breaker of Chains. And so that was the first time that they like put like cause Alex Graves gave some interviews about it that just sort of like made the whole situation worse i think um just Mm -hmm. every time he tried to explain it he just dug himself a little bit deeper the controversy around it i think kicked off with sonia soraya's av club piece that she called rape of thrones where she talked about all the times the show has like added rape and i think that was the first time that rape in on game of thrones um have been talked about in that way um, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> and a lot of people think it was the Sansa rape scene that really like gave Game of Thrones that black eye, but I, I think it was Breaker of Chains that really started it. Alex Grave kept de- digging himself deeper. Weiss and Benioff, I think, gave one interview about it. Nikolai Costa-Waldo gave one interview about it. But after that, they went on just like lockdown. And I think that's been their approach ever since, is like, we will feed our message through, you know, basically one friendly journalist, or we won't feed our message at all. <laughs> 
And um, I don't know that I entirely blame them. I don't know that I entirely respect them for that decision, but I don't know that I entirely blame them. And I don't know that I wouldn't do the same thing. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's tough because uh, if you assume that everybody has the best intentions in mind and it is just edited and montaged and poorly directed in a way, then what really happens is you have an entire group of creatives and an entire group of fandoms for the first time disagreeing about a topic as inflammatory as rape. So it's not like the theme doesn't exist in the show and won't exist in the future, but for uh, this big of an instance to be like, literally it seems like both audiences were talking past each other, I think led to a weird fissure. Uh, I think they're like afraid of anger sometimes. And I think this time it seemed like for the show that they, just had no idea it was coming. And so that anger seemed maybe slightly worse than it ended up being because I remember there being a lot of discussion about just, yeah, it's almost like, um, the way I think about that scene, especially with regard to the books is that everybody understood it. They just executed it completely incorrectly. Like they understood that it was because in the books you're, you're in, Cersei's mind, right? It's a Cersei's right. POV it's, it's character POV, for that. Yeah, when you're in the and she's like, head. yeah, exactly. She's like hesitant, but then you know you hear her think about just you know giving into it because she misses her brother, and it's not really rape. <laughs> Whereas oh, the show, I think it's Jamie. It's Jamie's POV, but it's but oh. it but it really is very much feels less less rape. In the right, it feels it feels like angry consensual sex that yeah, they're like having. They're mad dynamic. at each other, but they're yeah. still going to do this. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, even if they were trying to do that as a change from the book, if they decided that the show needed rape at this point, the fact that then the director would come out and say otherwise is sort of, you know, drive kind of makes that point moot. Right. Yeah. So, like, Benny, like, Benioff gives this interview, or in the episodes, of, like, behind the making of the scene or whatever, he goes... It becomes a really kind of horrifying scene because you see, obviously, Jeffrey's body right there. You see that Cersei is resisting this. She's saying no, and he's forcing himself on her. So it was a really uncomfortable scene and tricky scene to shoot. That, to me, is a description of rape, right? What Benioff just said is Yeah, maybe they didn't rape. read it right. And then, but then... <laughs> like, it feels like a failure on multiple levels. Yeah, like I just feel like they weren't directed, all on the... poorly s- written. I think they weren't all, all on the same page because Benioff is describing rape, and then Graves is like... And then Graves goes into, like, granular detail about, like... Like, I just want to read this to you because I think it's so funny. He gave this interview to Vulture where he said, the consensual part of it was that she wraps her legs around him and she's holding on the table, clearly not to escape, but to get some grounding in what's going on. And also the other thing that I think is clear before they hit the ground is she starts to make out with him. The big things to us were so important and that hopefully we're not missed is that before he rips her undergarment, she's way into kissing him back. She's kissing him aplenty. Um... It's just, yeah, it just really does feel like everyone was not on the same page of like what they wanted the scene to be and and then went out and gave these interviews and said different things. And, <laughs> and like you just want to be very clear in the Internet age or at any time when you're depicting consensual and non-consensual sex, I think, because, uh, you know, people are so often to often want to question what is consensual non-consensual sex in the real world. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think I remember the first time seeing that scene that it didn't like, I never, I, I yeah, it, it, it identified, it, I identified it as weird 
that they would frame it that way. Because I was like, wait, that's not how it happens in the books. Right. But, you know, hey, listen, they've made some bad choices. Um, and then we'll get to those more of those later. Yeah, I'll say one final thing, which is that this is this is, I think, one of the last time that Martin, George R. R. Martin weighed in as explicitly uh, his disapproval of something. Because I think mm-hmm. after that, he was sort of quiet on the Western front about things. Um, but he wrote a long post about it. And in the at the his final graph on it, I think, is if the show had retained some of Cersei's dialogue from the books, it might have left a somewhat different impression. But that dialogue was very shaped by the circumstances of the books delivered by a woman who was seeing her lover again for the first time after a long while apart, during which she feared he was dead. I'm not sure it would have worked with the new timeline. Um, yeah, so this is part of, like, Martin's whole, like, butterfly effect. And I remember writing about it at the time and basically just seeing seeing this as an early example of Martin wanting to distance himself, not have to take any responsibility for what the show is doing. Cause he's like, they're making bold choices. This is no longer quite my story. So I don't feel like I can be held responsible for this anymore. You know, so. don't get mad at, don't get mad at me. I'm writing another book. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be out soon. guys. Man. Remember when he was writing another book? <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, I believe in you, George. I believe in you. <laughs> All right. You while guys should say on, your MVPs. <laughs> yeah. While we're on season MVP, uh, I think Joanna and I have the same one. She includes the character, but I'm definitely going with Pedro Pascal, the actor. Yeah. And, you know, Oberyn. He's, he's the best. What else can we I don't, say? I don't... Yeah. I mean, I guess it's really rare that you see a character on Game of Thrones that in the entire run... Uh, spends 99% of his time on screen completely in control of his own circumstance. Then that 1%, though. Uh. His, uh, like, there, there's some little moments that maybe we should highlight. Or, like, there's his scene with um, Varys, where he's talking about, like, Varys' sexual preferences and, like, his fondness for travel and stuff like that. Mm, and then there's, there's the small council scene where it's even even just the way he's sitting with his boot, like, up on the table, basically. Not up on the <laughs> table, but, like, near the table. That is just so, like, insouciant and, like, perfect. And I just, I love him. Everything he does. Oh, and the yeah, joke he makes great. about the Unsullied not being great in the bedroom. Yes. <laughs> yes. He, he, uh, knows, he knows the, the world because he's traveled around and had sex with it. I have, it's pretty sweet. I have one final MVP, which is uh, a voice actor named Richard Writings, who it's not confirmed. It's not been confirmed officially by HBO or anything like that. But apparently, strong rumor has it, and he himself confirmed it to someone, but who knows, that he is the actual voice of the mountain. And that makes a lot of sense to me because watching this season, having subsequently actually heard what Hop 4 sounds like, I was like, that's not what that guy sounds like. (laughs) And he only has, I think, like three scenes, three lines. Um, And like the one where Cersei encounters him and I think he says like, who do I have to kill or something like that? Who am I to kill? Yeah, is shot. I don't think it's shot on him. I thought it, I think it's a reverse shot. You don't see him actually talking. And then his other lines are said with the helmet over his face. So, yeah, I'm really pretty sure. And someone has a theory that actually Richard Writings voiced all of the mountains. I'm not sure that that's true. But I definitely think that he voiced Hapfor. The mountain won't be having any more lines. So we'll never know. But um, <laughs> he only grunts now. So. Richard, Dark Horse MVP. 
Moving on to best worst polygons. Joanna, you just have one thing written down here. Is it the best and the worst of the polygons? The worst. I hate it so much. (laughs) What What would that be? I thought this was the best. That fucking scythe. I hate that scythe. It looks so not real to me coming out of that it's pretty wall. cheesy Ugh, it's but you know what is great in that scene that i is not my pick but i'm suggesting it as a best is the shot where the dude gets impaled by the giant arrow and they cut all they just follow him falling yes. all the way down the other side <laughs> yeah that's good fantastic effects very good very good <laughs> no best just worst um come back to me on best all right i'm going to pick the the best polygons is they actually start getting King's Landing right, I feel like, this season. Uh, from the plate backgrounds to especially in the Mountain of the Viper, uh, the various scenes of the, the battleground where they just have, like, the bleachers, but it's up against, like, a nothing mountainside, and they've, you know, put in King's Landing. And then that, we get some good views of it by the sea, which are so much better than uh, Gendry's kidnapping. You could really tell they're they're putting that city together and uh, getting ready to blow it up in a few seasons, but we didn't know that at this point. And then uh, the worst polygons are going to be the fairy grenades that are thrown at the skeletons. Yeah. I don't know what HBO Real has bad. with fairy grenades, because they were also on True Blood around this time, so I, I feel like there was attempt to make fairy grenades happen. And the but, skeletons, uh, I'd say. And the the Children of the Forest faces, which they later decided to do with makeup much wise, much more wisely. Children of the Forest faces are bad. I, the skeletons, though, it's hard for me to call for a bad skeleton because I'm still old enough to be like a Ray Harryhausen devotee. So, like, intentionally skeletons that look slightly stop motion intentionally. Like, I'm like, oh, hey, that's a throwback to this instead of if I see other sort of... Uh, modeled characters i'm trying to think about how they would work with physics mm-hmm. so i don't know it might be an age gap there might be a post harryhausen skeleton i'm older than that, you. <laughs> uh, everybody else likes i thought of harryhausen too and that's no i think i think that's the i agree with you dave that that's the intentional references to harryhausen but like um i don't know like the the stop motion skeletons of it's sinbad right like is like i don't know I don't know. It's kind well, of weird but, in I Game guess, of Thrones, where everything else well, looks pretty uh, the, real. Well, right, but like, how are how would skeletons move? Well, I mean, like I've seen all the special effects videos. We um, once again, this is this is when I was working for VF.com. So uh, a great writer, Kitty Kaludi, like sort of uh, talked to all the VFX guys about that scene and about like the um, we've I think we've all seen the guys in suits. So they had guys in, in you know in green suits, sort of doing that action, and then just sort of laid the skeletons over them. But I don't know. Maybe it's really just like that whole sequence with Jojen being stabbed, and you're like, that's not actually his belly, and I don't. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, that's a practical yeah, you're thing. Right, you're right. I'm just—it's right. hard for me to call the. the I mean, the, everything about the fairy sequence is kind of bad, but I don't know if necessarily the skeletons are the things that I'd pick out as being like, that's bad. They blow up in little skeleton parts in the tree. Then they rush around. There, it's in a it's a high contrast scene. I don't know. I give it a pass. Okay. Not great, but pass. Uh, anyway, Neil. Ne- Neil. Yes. Hi. Um. Let's see. Best and worst polygons. Okay, there we go. Uh, my best is actually another cityscape. Uh, Dave mentioned the quality of 
King's Landing, which I agree with for sure. Um, but that shot when Stannis is arriving at Bravos, the pullback shot that um, shows the Titan and then all of Bravos behind it, really impressive. I'm sure there is probably a good um, example maybe in the first three seasons, but this to me felt like a really advanced setup shot that they had not really tried before. And uh, it works perfectly with Bravos because Bravos is a big, very cool city. So uh, that's my best polygons. My worst is they still had not quite figured out how to work with uh, the ne- like the the zero space of dragons uh, on set. So the Danny chaining up her dragons stuff just it just it doesn't track. Like they made a good choice. I mean, obviously it's from the books, but a good choice to shoot in this location where the dragons are kind of in the dark. Cause that seems to help. Um, but her putting the chains on the dragons just looks kind of terrible. Yeah. I will come back with my best polygon shot and say it's that shot of Drogon. It's still my favorite dragon shot. I think of the entire series, that shot of Drogon, like rising up. And oh my God. Torching the sheep and stuff like that. So that one is amazing. Yeah. Like that, that had to be such a tough shot, but they nailed that one. Yeah, it's really good. You can really feel the weight of him as he comes up, and he just looks like so scary and huge and impressive. So, Drogon. This is obviously because he's not chained. This is the season that Drogon starts standing out for me as a as a dragon. Like I, I didn't learn the names of all the dragons until this season. Do you know the the but, name of the other two? Uh, Rhaegar and Viserion. Very close. Um, the oh Rhaegar. Damn it. Rhaegal. Oh, very close. Um, the other best polygon, uh, I just want to give a shout, a callback to an earlier, I think, worst polygons. Maybe most improved polygons can be the Airy, because we talked about this. They they grounded the, oh, the yeah. painting of the Airy with that bloody gate, and so it just doesn't look so stupid. Like, you can still see that matte painting in the background, but, like, um, the, the bloody gate sort of being the point of entry um, makes it just feel like a, a more an actual place that they're going to. Yeah. This season they, they do expand like Neil was talking about their establishing shots, which makes it that much more frustrating that when we see Winterfell again, we still don't really see Winterfell. (laughs) Winterfell is like the worst shot primary location that like every single one of its establishing thoughts throughout the series is like through this fog. So the best idea you have of what Winterfell looks like is from the opening where it's like a little, clockwork toy to really just dis- or Actually, maybe Sans- maybe Sansa's uh, s- uh, snow hut is the first time I got a good look Sansa. at it Sansa um, so Sansa's you're about, snow hut you're talking about Ramsey and Roos are sort of looking at it from afar the- and they don't like say Winterfell so you're just supposed to know yeah. by like recognizing their writing towards it yeah. and it's really difficult because they still haven't like establish what Winterfell looks like because the first season when it was supposed to be all grand, they had like no money to do that. So Winterfell always looks kind of disappointing. Oh, Winterfell always letting us down. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Let's not think about uh, things that didn't improve. Let's keep on with things that did improve with most improved performance. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Neil first. All right. Uh, I have a feeling that mine and Joanna's go together. Um, yes, I agree. Because uh, mine is Maisie Williams, who I thought 
especially toward the end of the season. Like she's good, uh, and I really love the Tywin Arya stuff, of course. But Maisie Williams really starts to shine as Arya's demeanor gets more serious and dark. And she, you, you really start to realize that there's just something wrong with her. Like she's really just wants to kill people. Um, which, hey, maybe that's not wrong. This is Westeros. Um, so, and and really, the whole sequence of the, at the in the children where she's gonna um, deciding what to do with the Hound. Just her just dead stare at him is fantastic. So, uh, this was really to me the season that Maisie Williams shown. Uh, compared to other seasons and I have a feeling she'll maybe have another good season coming up, but that's, you know, that's for later. Fingers crossed, man. (laughs) (laughs) And Joanna, your conjoining choice (laughs) is, um, Rory McCann, AKA the hound. Um, you know, the hound is always sort of a great figure, uh, you know, and, and we had already seen some of the, more nuanced side of him in his interactions with Sansa. But when he hits the road with Arya, it really does become, you get a lot of the Hound's life philosophy, a lot of like life philosophy with the Hound. Um, and then that great scene, I think it's episode eight, um, where he talks about how his brother defi- disfigured him, how his father covered for his brother. Like, he, you know, he's like, you think you're alone. You don't know anything about feeling alone, like all this sort of stuff. And you're just like, Oh my God, do I love the hound now? Um, so yeah, the, the hound stuff is, um, I, my, my MVP, I was trying to look up, I was trying to remember, do you remember which, which play I want to say it's waiting for Godot, uh, that they based that, like nothing isn't better or worse than anything. Nothing is just nothing conversation. Um, hmm. on with the guy who's dying. I think it's based on waiting for Godot, like that they they like got a um a stage actor who's known for being in productions of Waiting for Godot, and they just sort of like um lifted that, and it was sort of like one of these moments that they really um wanted to. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh. The dialogue in Arya and Sandor's scene with the dying farmers a reference to avant-garde Irish playwright Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. Actor Barry McGovern, who plays Dying Farmer, has appeared in several stage productions of the play. Um, so th- that, to me, felt like them trying to really like lean into their artier side. And I, as a, as a snob, I encourage it. So <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. So yeah, the hound. Well, you guys have talked me into it. I I agree with both of you. I didn't have a good choice. I was just basing it off of that I didn't like dislike Sam at all at all this season. So I was going to give it to John Bradley. But hearing you guys talk and making me relive the Arya and the, the mountain or the oh god Arya and the Hound adventures through the through the the middle of Westeros map uh, makes me realize that you guys are totally right. It's definitely one of the two of them. Uh, it's hard to tell. Because we both take a break from good performance, or no, good story for each of them for a while. One because he's sort of dead. The other one, she's got to do some stuff that gets boring. Uh, but they both have the potential to come back and be a most improved performance in this season, I would imagine. Uh, this upcoming season, this summer, if nothing else. We'll see. All right. Back to the Dornish, because I feel like we went two categories without discussing them enough. The best character introduction, Mr. Neil Miller. 
Yes, I have this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this God. is a, a no shit award, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oberyn Martell, because yep. the whole, just the way that that whole thing is is uh, directed and shot and written, and the him messing with the Lannisters and the little so many tiny veins in the wrist. Oh God, he's so good. Like what it establishes all at once, which is really fascinating. It you know from a production from a writing standpoint is it establishes that he is dangerous. He is. Uh, sexy. He is uh, fearless. Like he puts his hand through the fire, uh, and that he is a, a very intelligent person because he starts with like the veins in the wrist and all that stuff. Um, it just. It, I don't know if any character has gone from like zero to formidable as quickly as Oberyn Martell, and that is just a whole fantastic sequence. And it ends with him and Tyrion having a chat, which also great. So, uh, that this yeah no shit. And then re- yeah, remember let's... how we then meet the Sand Snakes. <laughs> yeah, I uh, mean we don't have to talk about that ever right. yet. Yeah, we don't have to talk about it yet for sure. But we could stay in the whorehouse for Joanna's pick. Let's stay in the whorehouse. Um, yeah, since since once again I want to cede most things over into to Neil, who has a special relationship with him. Um, <laughs> I I will pick Oberyn's backup. Which is hilarious, and um, and I think Indira Varma. I mean, she she doesn't have a ton to do this season, but everything she does is really great. And so, like, it's so interesting to watch the later stuff when you get you don't want to see Ilaria Sand's face anymore, and you really have to reckon with the fact that this is not the actress's fault because she is really great this season and um, not so great in future seasons. And yeah, so. Character introduction wise, you know, like she and Oberyn are sort of picking out their sex partners and, you know, she gets to say stuff like too timid or like whatever <laughs> about these various whores. So, um, yeah. Hilarious. She's and a she great, that great scream when Oberyn gets his teeth knocked yeah, out. Her scream yeah. and like her, her appearance at the, you know. Dorn is full of bastards or like whatever at the wedding, like everything they do to fuck with Cersei at the wedding, like all of it, all good. So yeah. A lot. They, they go together really well. They those do. two. They do. And, uh, because I signed in last to the document and Oberyn and Ilaria were actually, no, I think just Oberyn was taken, but I decided to take the third mountain it's, just for his scene it's not bad. of getting, getting just killing people. And then he gets in some armor and kind of gets the last laugh with Oberyn after getting stabbed. And then he gets, you know, he's going to get brought back. So I'm going to say Third Mountain. He's the mountain that's going to stick. You know, may what? or may You're... not ever hear his real voice. But uh, in terms of character introductions, I think there's some uh, good humor, horror, gore. Yeah, you, which is you a have cer- difficult balance. There's like one scene of him committing atrocities i think just like really isolated floating itself out there right and then basically you get the second part of that scene i almost think in a different episode when jamie gives the introduction of like it's not gonna be sir maritran or or whatever that's gonna be fighting and then you cut back to him committing more atrocities eviscerating more people and then you get cersei gingerly stepping 
over the eviscerat <laughs> to him. And there's that great uh, like Instagram photo of Lena Heaney and Hapfor uh, sitting next to each other, and she's like comes up to his hip, basically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. So yeah, finally, finally we got a mountain that stuck. It's a good choice. It took us four seasons. Um, uh, all right, and now for for our our listeners have started finding Catelyn Stark Memorial Most Ironic Statement Awards in books, which I totally want to encourage. If you're rereading Game of Thrones in preparation, if you're reading a Song of Ice and Fire series in preparation for Game of Thrones, and you find lines where people say ridiculous things that you know to be extremely ironic, either because it will absolutely never happen and it's so obvious, or because it absolutely does happen to them, please let us know. Start with spoilers at gmail.com. It's been really fun. Here are our picks from season four. Mr. Neil Miller is going to go first. Uh, So, you know, by this point in the show, it's actually, it gets a little harder to find those, because obviously we've lost... The queen of ironic statements, Catelyn Stark. <laughs> um, but Cersei really lays one down um, when she's talking to Kevin, Uncle Kevin. Uh, and she says, uh, speaking of Tommen, she says, you'll fight over him like beasts until you tear him apart. I will burn. No, she's talking to Tywin. Um, she says, I will burn our house to the ground before I let that happen. She's talking about uh, Tywin and um, all the people who would fight over Tom and if she left and went to Highgarden. And uh, what's ironic about that is that uh, she she done did that. She done burned a lot of stuff to the ground. So... Yeah, a lot. You know. And pro- maybe the House Lannister to be continued this, this July. For sure. Uh, Joanna has a couple. Yeah. So I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go before you do. Here we go. It's fascinating what happens to bodies when they hit the rocks from such a height. The impacts breaks them right apart, like eggs dropped on the floor. Sometimes pieces remain intact. You'll find the head sitting on its own. Every hair in place. Blue eyes staring at nothing, says Catelyn Stark's sister Lysa minutes before she plunges out the moon door. <laughs> I, I wonder if there's like a version of the shot that where like they show Lysa on the ground. And I'm, With her and eyes, I'm glad and they didn't. Her eyes, her blue eyes staring at nothing. I think I think I would kind of go for that. It, that'd be kind of humorous. It would, be, it would depend how it's done. Like, well, that's the thing. It would be humorous, and like it sort of depends how it's done. Uh. But that is uh, that's my that's my answer, Joanna. Which which of your answers do you want to present first? Yeah, I'm just gonna go for all of them. Um, <laughs> So I guess I want I want to do this little finger one, which um, feels like the 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 writer's feeling sort of too clever by half, where Littlefinger is talking to Robin about um, how people die. He says people die at their dinner tables, people die in their beds, people die squatting over their chamber pots. This is in episode eight, I guess. Um, and you know, Joffrey died at his dinner table. Uh, Shay dies in her bed and Tywin dies squatting over the chamber pot. So that's sort of like one of those lines that people sort of picked out as instant rimshot.com. Yeah. <laughs> um, are you pregnant is one that I mentioned earlier, Lysa to Sansa. You have pretty hair, Carl de Mira, which made me think of the Mira Jon Snow twin theory. That's based entirely on that actress's hair looking like Kit Harrington's hair. Um, and then, uh, Tyrion, uh, Jamie asking Tyrion, like, are you sure that Sansa's not the one who killed Joffrey? And Tyrion saying, Sansa's not a killer yet. 
and then the camera cuts to Sansa and Littlefinger on the boat together. So, um, yeah, Sansa the, the... It's almost like they were trying at this point. <laughs> Sansa the proto-killer. <laughs> Season four is definitely the pivot into bad things happen to good people. At least now there's there's some, I feel like, consequence uh, to people's actions. But there's a lot of stuff in season five that just uh, it just seems like bad bad things happening to, to good people for no reason. So it's go ahead. Can I posit something? Yes. Um, I know we're in like the home stretch of this episode, and you're probably like, "Please, you want to shut up?" But um, <laughs> I think not just because Neil loves this character. I think Oberyn Martell's death is the last death that really matters. On Game of Thrones. Um, The last death that really hits in a substantive way. Because later I think it becomes this sort of like orgy of grief. Like who cares about Marcella dying? Like they did not. No. No one cares. You know. Do you really care about Tommen jumping out the window or the Sept blowing up? Like and Marjorie and Loras. Like it's. Those deaths are not engineered in a way that like. Maybe Tommen that like make me really feel for the rise and fall and the tragedy of circumstances, the way that Ned Stark's death, the Red Wedding and Oberyn Martell's death do these. These are the iconic, you know, Tywin to a certain extent, but like these are the iconic deaths of Game of Thrones that George R. R. Martin came up with. And like John's death, if it had ever had a chance of sticking, maybe could enter that list. But since like we're in resurrection territory now, um, do you know, like, would you agree? Would you disagree? Like, what do you think? I'm trying to scan over people that die that I care about later on. It's yeah, you, they they do waste bears and sell me later, so I guess not that. I guess we do we haven't seen Hodor Jorah sorry. die yet. Hodor, I guess you're right. Oh yeah, Hodor is pretty bad. Hodor's rough. Yeah, well, it, it shows that it took him two seasons to get back to a death like that. Yeah, like to make one really because I I think. It's not just Oberyn, but it, it it does feel like you could kind of lump Shay and Tywin. Basically, the end of season four is the last time we felt, um, you know, we felt strongly about a death until the Hodor thing, which was a season and a half later. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of the Hodor scene also comes with the fact that that reveal comes in a TV show, which we talked about in the podcast, because it's about like editing and score and performance and all of that. But these are definitely like the last of the George R. R. Martin deaths that I, I don't know, that really had an impact on me. I mean, oh, I, hey, shut up, BB. <laughs> BB, it's like, I disagree. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I don't think I have, I don't think I read the Jon Snow death without knowing that most people thought he was coming back. So I don't know what that was like for book readers who read it and were like, oh, my God, Jon Snow. Like, maybe they felt that, like, same, oh, my God, yeah, I'm writing was... about it. But there's also a certain <laughs> fatigue that has to set in. You know, you have to have certain fatigue. You have to, like, no longer believe that good things are going to happen for people. Like, the Ob- and I think the Oberyn scene is really instrumental in destroying that because you're, like, you're watching the show and you're, like, oh, God, Ned Stark died. Oh, God, Catelyn and Robb Stark died. This is, this is ugh. I'll never believe in this again. But then you watch Oberyn and you're like, oh, he's he's winning and, and Tyrion's going to be safe and, and and he's winning and he's getting what he wants. And then like, and then he doesn't. And I really do think that that's the last time that people 
you know, certainly the last time people filmed people watching something. <laughs> and, and, and the Jon Snow thing is handled, I think, kind of poorly in the book and then, I mean, kind of poorly in the show and then actually even a little poorly in the book too, where I like, I don't believe in that mutiny and I, I, I really don't believe that that mutiny is tied into a Jon Snow flaw. Like the, the the tragic deaths that are tied into um, the flaw in these characters, Ned Stark's nobility or Oberyn's arrogance or whatever it is, and I I just don't know what Jon Snow's like flaw is, especially since the show just sort of tries to paint him as good. Um, the book it's a little bit more complicated. He's going to like leave the Night's Watch in order to go rescue his sister, like betray his vow, basically. Um, but like that's still good, and so there's no like flaw that is his undoing and then when his undoing becomes undone the next season it's like what what impact does that have shireen i guess maybe but that's just like torture porn that's like once again not related to any it's a flaw in stannis not a flaw in her is the stannis's death stick with us i don't know like, mm, no because that was more about brienne yeah in the end so yeah, no. this, I mean, I right. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be eager to hear if our listeners disagree or, you know, if they just think I've become heartless and dead inside, which is entirely possible, dead inside. But, um, yeah. <laughs> there is, you know, I can, the, I've already <clears throat> watched ahead. I'm the one this week who watched ahead. Uh, but <laughs> there is a noticeable change in the way I feel feel about season four to the way I feel about season five. It just, there's just something different. And the only thing you can really chalk it up to is this is, this is where the showrunners really took over from George. And I think what's interesting is that when we talked through these first four seasons, we had a, a lot of things where we were like, yeah, that actually, they changed that and it worked. It wasn't until there's a few moments in season four, you know, just a few, but then season five, the conversation could turn to here's all the stuff that they're doing that doesn't make any sense, or here's all the stuff they're doing that feels sort of wrong uh, as to what we expect George to do, which is dangerous territory because we don't know what the, you know, George's next where he goes with this. Uh, a lot of this weird stuff could be part of it, but um, yeah, there's definitely a turning point and we've reached it. And uh, I, I miss those first four seasons. I would rewatch those a thousand times uh, because they're like, it's four of the best seasons of television period. That sounds, that sounds like a really down transition to our preview. Meal, <laughs> where, where are we forced to go next week? Well, next week we're going to season five, which, uh, you know, there's some stuff. We return to the Eerie. We return to Winterfell. Uh, we take a jaunt to the land of always winter. And unfortunately, we take a trip to Dorne. Womp womp. Some bad spear fighting after I was promised excellent spear fighting for a whole <laughs> off season. That's the other thing about... Uh, wait, I'm sorry. I know here, you're go, trying go ahead, to go finish. Ahead. But that Oberyn fight, as Dave already mentioned, by like the setting, incredible. By the water, incredible. The m physical mismatch of the assailants, great. Or combatants, great. And then the fact that you've got like heavy sword fighting versus nimble spear fighting, just great. Okay. 
That's, I just want to balance all my negativity of the season. That's, that's, <laughs> it's just a perfect, perfect scene. No, there's a lot of good stuff in season four. It's just season five comes along and the show starts to become something else and maybe doesn't find itself by the end. At least that's how I remember it. We're all going to have to find that together with a season five rewatch. Your homework, rewatch season five of Game of Thrones. There are also Storm of Spoilers episodes from that season with the three of us discussing crazy theories like when is Lady Stoneheart going to show up <laughs> and, uh, you know, on and on into per- perpetuity. Uh, as we uh, trounce through season five. Uh, but until then, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Mr. Neil Miller. Uh, you can find me probably uh, defending Joanna's previous theory about Jon Snow warging into his wolf when he dies <laughs> over at filmschoolrejects.com. You can follow me on Twitter at rejects. Uh, be sure to follow the show, of course, at Storm of Spoilers. And if you have comments, questions, suggestions for awards, if you want, um, stormerspoilers at gmail.com is our email. And Joanna Robinson. Um, you can find me vanityfair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. And you can find me on Twitter at DA7E. And that's, that's where you should find me right now. I'm still in that period of life of like early morning politics, then some pop culture back and forth, then like something bad about Batman and then uh, promo- <laughs> promoting my podcasts. And this week, you know, I have a whole bunch of uh, David Wedding audio that comes out in a special Fighting in the War Room at fightingintheworroom.com. If you want to hear that, David Ehrlich got married. He's in Japan. But the important thing is that you join us next week for season five because we can't do it just the three of us alone. We're going to need your help. See you next week, guys. At Tasty Cake, it's all about making happy happen, no matter what the situation. Hey, helping your friend move, huh? Yeah, third time this year. What do you say we put a smile on that face with a Tasty Cake peanut butter candy cake? Eh, sure, why not? So, what do you think? Hmm, I gotta say, that's a delicious cake. Great, so you're happy now? Eh, happy-ish. That's good enough for me. Another happy-ish customer. Tasty Cake, we make happy happen.